I encourage you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. We'll finish this chapter this morning. It's a continuation of, of last week, the beginning of chapter 5. Uh, and I mentioned this last week, but chapter 5 is a significant departure from the rest of the book, specifically what we've seen so far. So far, we've seen every chapter talk about the wall, rebuilding, um, enemies, Nehemiah praying, all of those sorts of things. And in chapter 5, we don't, we don't see any mention of the wall at all. And he discovers, you can see, um, verse 6 specifically, he, he discovers and he's angry about the fact that there were people in the community who had plenty and were taking advantage of people in the community who didn't have enough, who, who were poor, and they were being taken advantage of. And verse 9 of chapter 5 captures Nehemiah's pretty bold, sharp, um, convicting question. He says this, Ought you not walk in the fear of the Lord? Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? The thing that you're doing is not good, he says. Sometimes, and I mentioned this last week too, we need people in our lives to speak truth to us even when it's hard. Even when we don't really want to hear it, we need people like Nehemiah to come to us and say, what you're doing is not good. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God instead? Hopefully we have friends, maybe in this church, maybe outside of this church, but hopefully we've got friends that do that for us. Praise God for those friends in our lives. I think Nehemiah's intent was to say the hard thing to the people, not just to anger them, but actually to, to tell them, you need to get back on the right track. I love you enough to speak these words to help you see what you're doing is not right and to get back on the right track. I think this was what his intent was in verse 9. It wasn't just lip service though. Nehemiah practiced what he preached and that's what we get to see in the rest of this chapter. So let's read chapter 5 verses 10 through 19 and then we'll pray and continue on. Moreover, I and my brothers, my servants, are lending them money and grain. He's talking about the poor. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on the wall 
And we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared... Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet all for all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for, the, for this people. Let's pray. Lord, I, I don't see this as arrogance here. I don't see this as boasting at all. I see this as a example of your faithfulness. And I think that's Nehemiah's intent here is to show that you are good to your people. You provide, you, you don't lay heavy burdens on them. In fact, Jesus says that he's come to take those heavy burdens away and to give us something much lighter and so I pray as, as we read more and think more and study more on these things, Lord, that um, our generosity and our fear of you would increase today for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. So just, to th- just think back with me for a second on just the first couple of chapters. And you can flip back there and look at the headings um, here if you want. But the first couple of chapters, Nehemiah has been a man of prayer, right? Every step of the way, he stops to pray. Even in the middle of a conversation with the king, he stops to pray. And not only is he a man of prayer, but then we see that he is a man of action. He puts these plans and this preparation and even this prayer and he, and he does something with it. Chapters 3 and 4, Nehemiah displays a lot of leadership characteristics there, but he also displays, more importantly, trust in the Lord. And he encourages the people to do the same. He's, remember, he says, don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awesome God. And in light of that, fight for your brothers and sisters. Now, in chapter 5, we see there's a, there's a problem in the group and he's given instruction on how to fix this. And now we see how he lives appropriately in regards to the situation that his, that his people and he were in. His actions reveal his heart. And I think this is almost always the case, isn't it? What we do reveals what's in our heart. Jesus says what we say reveals what's in our heart as well. So Nehemiah has just gotten done informing those who have been guilty of lording it over those who don't have enough, who are taking advantage of them. He is inform- He's informed them of their guilt, and he just really just flat out tells them, like, here's what you need to do to make this right. What you're doing is not good, right? He's already said that. Now he says, here's what you need to do. And this, I think, is really what's at the core of a big word that we're going to talk about today, and you, you've heard it before, but it's repentance. I think we see the outline of this draped over this whole chapter. And if you think about it through that lens, I think you'll see it along with me. Really what's at the core of, of repentance is understanding wrong behavior and then taking steps to fix that. 
to make it right, to correct it. I've got some verses from the New Testament listed in your notes. You can look at those for your own study on this from Luke 3 and Acts. Several times where we see this is the, the, the mode of repentance. So you could say it another way. This is the first blank on your notes this morning. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. Okay, so it's a change of your mind. Yes, you're reformatting how you think about things. But it doesn't just stop in your mind. It moves into how you behave, to your actions. And we see this here. Look at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5. This is what Nehemiah is doing. He says, what you're doing is wrong. Stop it. Stop exacting interest from the vulnerable. He says, abandon that practice. Stop doing it. Don't do it any longer. And then verse 11 is kind of that second part, the part where they take steps to correct the wrong behavior. He, he tells them how. He says, return to them this day their fields, their vineyards, orchards, houses, and the unfair interest on loans, grain, wine, oil, those sorts of things. So I hope you can see the steps of repentance outlined here, right? Change your mind. Understand what you've done is wrong. He's laid this out for them. He said it. What you're doing is wrong. But then also change your actions. Take the necessary steps to make it right. Moms and dads, when we're talking with our kids who are in conflict, we teach them this sort of thing. Hopefully that's what we're teaching them. We apologize. We see that what we're what they're doing is wrong. We teach them to apologize. But if it just stops there, we've stopped short. You should do that. But then we'd also say, okay, how can I make this right? How can I trust the Spirit of God to keep me from doing this again? Change your actions. And and I think and Jason mentioned these two stories. Uh, think back to David and Nathan. David had sinned with Bathsheba and Nathan comes to him and he tells him this story. David doesn't realize he's the point of the story at the beginning. In 2 Samuel 12, he tells a story about a rich man who steals his poor man's only lamb to feed the rich man, to feed his guests that he came over. He's got a ton, but he steals the only one the poor man has. And of course, when Nathan tells David this story, you, you probably heard, heard the story. David just gets irate. He gets angry. His anger burns within him, it says there. He recognizes the sin of the man in this story. And he insists, I don't know if you remember this from the story, he insists that the man pay for the stolen lamb. This is what David says. He says he should pay four times over because he's done such a thing and had no pity. That was David's reasoning how to make this right. And then Nathan throws the curveball at him and he says, David, you are that man. So the purpose of the story that Nathan told was to confront David with his own sin. And, and David knew, even before realizing it was him, he knew what actions needed to be taken. Uh, then we move into the New Testament with Jesus and Zacchaeus. We, we've sang the song, you know that story. Luke chapter 19, Zacchaeus after Jesus, he says, hey, I'm coming to your house. I love how Jesus just invites himself over. I'm coming. Maybe we should try that sometimes. Hey, I'm coming to your house for lunch today. What have you got? Um, but Jesus does this. He says, I'm, I'm coming to your house today. And we don't, we're not told all of the details of what happened, uh, in Zacchaeus's heart, but something happened, right? And we see it evidenced immediately. 
immediately Zacchaeus realizes what he's been doing is wrong. I don't, I don't know if he and Jesus had a conversation about it or if it was just something that the spirit had been working in his heart before this situation. But then all of a sudden Zacchaeus is like, I'm messed, I, I messed up. I've done what's wrong here. And right away he makes steps to take steps to make it right. He says, I'm going to give half of everything that I have to the poor. And then everybody who I cheated, who I swindled, who I defrauded out of money, I'm going to give them back four times what I took. Unprompted. I mean, you can read the story. Jesus doesn't tell him to do any of this. This is just comes from within him. And it proves that initial point that I made that what comes out of your heart reveals your, or your actions reveal what's in your heart. This act of repentance revealed Zacchaeus's heart. And to the amazement and actually grumbling of all the people around, Jesus says, today's salvation has come to this house. And he even declares that Zacchaeus was a son of Abraham. That's really what made him mad. This guy got saved. He was a believer. He repented of his sin and he was a son of Abraham. That's in Luke 19, 9. Again, just to Drive this point home. Here's the pattern. Understand what you've been doing is wrong. Take steps to make it right. Now, understand in saying this and in emphasizing this, I'm not suggesting that just temporary change is right based on guilt alone. That, that doesn't produce righteousness. That further solidifies a guilt-based motivation for everything. Nehemiah appealed to the covenant community of Israel to keep their covenant agreement. We talked about Leviticus last week and how it was, it was a point of the law that you not abuse your brothers and sisters with usury, exorbitant tax. You weren't supposed to look at when the year of Jubilee was coming and only make decisions on when lending money based on that. No, don't do that. They were disobeying the law. And Nehemiah is saying, remember these things. That's the baseline. The law was the baseline that Jews shared, that the people of God all had in common. Okay, But they had forgotten or neglected what they'd been instructed about treating their brothers and sisters with fairness and love and caring for them. But here's here's the thing. If, If you don't have God... And his covenant as a baseline or as a foundation, then who really cares if you take advantage of people or not? Isn't this the mindset of people without Christ? Hopefully it's never the mindset of those who call themselves believers. But if you don't have the biblical sense of morality that comes from understanding this, then who really cares? If, if you don't know and love God, you won't feel the force of this kind of remembrance on you and this kind of godly appeal to treat others biblically and properly and ethically will go in one ear and out the other. And we see this all the time because this is what we've been told is a dog-eat-dog world. You get ahead no matter what, no matter who's getting trampled in the process. My needs go first. And if... There are those who take others into account first. Well, that's just my opportunity to get ahead. And they're weak. This is the mindset. If you don't have Christ as a foundation, without a heart changed by the grace of God, just going through the motions of restitution 
ultimately can't please God because its motivation is not of faith. Romans 14.23 says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So just guilt-driven restitution is not faith, and it does not please God. It's the same reason why I think Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.6 says that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The law reveals our sin and our need for a Savior, which is good, which is necessary for us, but it's not sufficient to save. The law does not save. Jesus does. This is what Paul was getting at there. So making restitution without real repentance, it's just self-righteousness, guys. It's just self-centeredness. It's kind of like someone apologizing because they got caught, not because they really mean it. Not because they're really grieved over their sin. But think back to David and think back to Zacchaeus. Now, these guys weren't perfect. That's evidenced in those stories. But in their stories, true repentance is being convicted of sin and then desiring to take the necessary steps to make it right. Is that, is that how we live? When a person is justified by the saving grace of God and Jesus Christ, though, things change. Things change. They always do. It has to. If it hasn't, then you haven't received the Spirit. Things always change when a person is justified. And I think we see this change evidenced in verse 12. The people said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Moms and dads, how many times would you like your kids just to answer that way? We will do as you say. (laughs) Oftentimes we get a little grumbling, a little complaining, a little procrastination maybe. Maybe as adults we get that too. And yet the people here, they just say, we agree. Okay, we will do as you say. How do we respond when somebody reveals our sin to us? When somebody says, what you're doing is not good. Here's how to make it right. Do we say, yeah, but you don't understand what that person's like. You don't understand what kind of situation I'm in. You don't understand what I've been through. Or do we respond the way that Israelites did? Okay, we'll do as you say. Nehemiah then uh, calls the priests over and he makes them swear to do as they had promised. So he had the priests come and bear witness to these things that the people had promised to do. So he set up a little accountability for the people here. What they had promised to do, the priests were going to write down and observe. There's more accountability to come in the next couple of chapters when they kind of make a covenant again. But here they've got this little bit of accountability. I think it's a good thing. Look down at verse 13. Verse 13 says that Nehemiah gave them a demonstration to drive the point home. He says, I also shook out the fold of my garment. And he said, so may God shake out every man from his house, from his labor who does not keep this promise, so he may be shaken out and emptied. So this robe shaking, you can picture it. He's got this, this tunic on, this big robe, and you can, you can picture him up there just shaking it out. Now, I, don't, I don't know what, probably some dust came out of there, maybe some lint. 
um, those sorts of things. But he's shaking this out, and it's a demonstration. He's saying this was symbolic. Stuff that doesn't really belong. When you shake a garment out, what are you trying to get out? Crumbs, dust. You're trying to get stuff out that doesn't belong there. And Nehemiah is saying, this, this is symbolic of God doing this to all the people that don't really belong here. All the people that aren't going to keep their promise, that aren't going to keep their word. If you break your promise, if you go back on your word, and you don't truly return what you took from your brothers and your sisters, and forsake being unfair to them going forward, then you're going to be shaken out by the Lord. Now this, this might mean that this person would have their life turned upside down and shaken out and emptied of everything that they own. They would be then um, destitute and poor in the end. They took from others, now everything may be taken from them. It could also mean that Israel is the garment and the people who go back on their word would be shaken out from among God's people. E- either way, you look at this, this would be an extremely unpleasant thing to experience for them. And it was used as motivation and accountability so that it wouldn't happen again. Now notice again the people's response. It's not grumbling, it's not complaining, it's not having their arm twisted to do what's right. It's full agreement. Look at what they say. All the assembly said, Amen. You know what Amen means? It means, yes, I agree. Yes, and they praised the Lord. And don't overlook the last short sentence there, and the people did as they promised. Looks an awful lot like true repentance, doesn't it? I think at this point in chapter 5, the people had aligned themselves under the solution that Nehemiah had laid out in verse 9. Right? They were now walking in the fear of their God. That was his encouragement way back then. What you're doing isn't right. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God? Now, they've pointed out their sin. They've acknowledged that it's wrong. And now they've made steps to make it right. Now they're walking in the fear of their God. They wouldn't live any longer as though they were the ones who were in control, like some of them had the ultimate power or anything like that. But now they would live as though they were the ones who were under the authority of a great and awesome king, a great and awesome God. They were under, each one of them, under authority. This kind of realization ought to invoke a particular response in the people of God. Understanding that we are under the authority of a great and awesome God should invoke a particular response from God's people. When Nehemiah was encouraging and reassuring the people back in chapter 4, verse 14, he told them, he said, do not be afraid of your enemies. Right. So there he's saying, look at the enemy and don't be afraid. But when there's sin in the camp, so to speak, He says, look at God, and you better be afraid. And I think he does that for emphasis. I think he does that to say this. You better walk in the fear of our Lord because there's a worse fate than being attacked by your enemies. You better walk in the fear of the Lord because there's a worse fate than just being poor in this life. And God's patience and by His grace... The people respond here at this point in, I think, true repentance. 
If you look at the rest of the chapter, verses 14 through 19, these are a focused in view, I think, of the larger view of what the people had promised to do. The people said, yeah, we're going to make it right. And now Nehemiah is giving some personal testimony and saying, here's, here's how I've done this. Here's my part in this process. Here's my role. So if the whole plan of making it right was kind of the, the feature-length movie, these verses 14 through 19 are kind of like the preview or the trailer. They give kind of a, just a, a little snippet of what the whole picture was. They give an exciting and memorial highlight of what happens when God's people repent and truly live it out. And it all hinges, I want to point out on, on verse 15, the last comment there. That Nehemiah says, he does all of these things because of the fear of the Lord. That's why. He's generous because of his fear of the, of the Lord. He says for 12 years, he's been governing there, and he's never acted unfairly, greedily, and he's never acted better than anybody else. So just kind of a side note here. Uh, I mentioned this early on in our study. Uh, the wording of this verse in particular is why some people think that this, this chapter 5, um, the events here maybe happened towards the end of this, the whole story of Nehemiah, simply because he lists the total length of time he was the governor, 12 years. If he was writing this in the moment, he probably wouldn't have known that. He could have come back in and written that in the end. I'm not exactly sure. Um, I don't know that it matters, but I mentioned it before, uh, I think last week, and so I wanted to point out why some may think that today uh, but the point remains that nehemiah spends these verses reminding us that he would have been within his rights and i'm going to put air quotes around the rights within his rights as an appointed official from persia to take these things for himself he would not have been breaking the law in taking some of these things for himself Verse 17 says that he even had a bunch of visitors to his place and he picked up the tab on it all. And it was a bunch of stuff. I, I didn't go through the process of figuring out how much that would be, but look at what it says in verse 18. Every day there was an ox, six sheep and birds. So those of you who raise animals probably give us a little bit of detail on the expense there. That's, that's, a, that's a costly thing. And not only that, but every 10 days... There was all kinds of different wine in abundance. So it was a 10-day supply. So Nehemiah picks up a big tab at his own expense. Why? Well, he says because, because he knew that would be too heavy for the people. He could have taken the allotment of food for him and his team. He could have demanded the expensive uh, daily rations and all the perks that the previous governors had taken, but he, he didn't, and he... He not only didn't take when he could have, but he also gave when he didn't have to. Why? Why would he do this? Well, I think verse 15 tells us, he says he, he didn't do it because of the fear of the Lord, because he feared God. He didn't do it because he loved God and he had committed to fear and follow him. But I think verse 18 gives us a little more insight too. Nehemiah says he didn't do this because... The service was too heavy for the people. So he didn't do this because he loved God, but he also didn't do it because he loved the people. He loved his brothers and sisters. 
He had committed to not treat his brothers and sisters unfairly, and he knew it would be too heavy to ask them. They're already, some of them are already struggling to make it, to put food on the table for them and their kids. How could he, in, in, in right conscience, go and start asking them for their livestock? He could have. He would have been well within his rights, but he doesn't because of his love for them. Now, he doesn't demand that the people remember him either. Notice this in verse 19. He doesn't ask for a memorial statue to be erected of himself in Jerusalem for all of his goodness. He trusts the Lord to remember and record him accordingly, reward him accordingly. Jesus says that we're supposed to behave in the same way even today, still now. Matthew 6, he tells Christians not to make a big show about your giving. Don't demand everybody watch as you drop your money into the offering box. But instead, he says, give simply because the Father sees and will reward accordingly. And this is what Nehemiah does. I'm thankful for Nehemiah's example of generosity and love here. It teaches us, doesn't it, brothers and sisters? It teaches us that he loved his family And he sacrificed for them. Verse 16 reminds us that not only did he sacrifice financially, but he continued sacrificing physically. He says he didn't stop working on the wall. As an official, he he could have. He could have delegated that kind of a task from to do for one of his servants to do, but he rolled up his sleeves. And he worked hard side by side with those he cared for. Let me just encourage you in this. When you work like that as unto the Lord, it doesn't go unnoticed by God. He sees. That kind of sacrifice doesn't mean nothing. And we're called to love our brothers and sisters like that even now. Let me point out Hebrews chapter 6 verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. See, God is calling you to do what is right because of your love for him and because of your love for his people. And let me ask you this. Is that enough motivation for you? Is that enough for obedience, for repentance? Does the fear of God lead you to love others better? Does it lead you to truly repent of your sin? We're not talking about just being selfish and single-minded and, well, I'm just going to ask for forgiveness because I know they're upset and that's what they would want me to do. That's not true repentance. Does fearing God really lead you to repent of your sin? It should And then as you serve God and those around him, around you, God remembers the work of his people. As they serve him and those around them, God remembers the work of his people. What a Christian does, the New Testament is full of this encouragement, they they do to please God and not men. Right? Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. But if your service is fueled by by guilt or by a desire for earthly rewards, then there's a good chance that the foundation that your life is built on is faulty. 
easily crumbling. The only firm foundation is built on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Without him as your motivation for good works, it's all just self-righteousness. It's sin. No one can successfully rely on themselves to be right with God, can they? Or or enter heaven. Romans 3.23 is clear. Every one of us has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You can't rely on your own good works to be saved and you must believe in and have faith in God in order to draw near to him. But when you do, and here's a beautiful thing, and this is the joy of the gospel, when you do draw near by faith, God never turns you away. Jesus himself says this in John six thirty seven, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Never cast out. If you come to Christ in true repentance and faith, you can be sure that he'll never turn you away. I will not send away anyone who comes to me. That's what Jesus says. Do you believe this? Have you come to Jesus to be saved? Do you believe that he exists? Do you want to draw near to him? You can right now, today. By grace, through faith, you can. And if you have done that, if you are a believer, are you walking with the Lord in this way? Are you walking in the fear of Him? Are you walking in the right way? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ enough to do some kind of intentional kindness for them when it's not just an easy thing? Do you love them? Do you love God? Do you fear Him as you ought? See, the people of Jerusalem demonstrated their repentance by their actions. Glory to God. Here's the question that we're faced with even still today. Do my actions and my lifestyle demonstrate my repentance? Let's pray. Lord, you want to change our minds about sin. You want us to see that the sin that we're in, that we are stuck in, we can never get unstuck from on our own. And not only that, but the sin that we're in, that we have had a, a hand in, that have an active role in, it separates us from you, from your love, from your goodness. And those things without Christ can't be joined back together. But with Christ, Lord, every wall is knocked down. Every Divider has been removed, both between us and between uh, you and your throne. And so, Lord, each one of us, there's, there's times when we need to be called out. And so maybe your word would do that in our hearts and lives today. Maybe you're, you're calling to some of us and saying, what you've been doing is not good. You're encouraging us to abandon that. And that's good, and that's, that's a great start. It has to come in that way. And yet, Lord, help us not to leave it there. Help us to now go and trust in the Spirit to make this right. Lord, now how can we go and not sin this way again? 
Help those efforts, Lord, as struggling as we may be in them. Help them because we desire to glorify you. May we walk in your ways. May we walk in your fear so that we love you properly and love one another properly. We pray for true repentance. I pray for it in my own heart. I pray for it in the heart and lives of my brothers and sisters here. And as we now turn our attention to the cross, to the broken body and shed blood of Christ, I pray that you'd move our hearts to repentance and faith. In your name, amen.